So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I know the video references mostly Old Testament, but we're reading all from the New Testament, so I'll have to confuse you. We're going to start in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And then from Mark 12, 30 through 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then lastly, from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. And I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the last week that we're, we're going through the, the things that make Methodists unique in what we believe. And really, when you boil it down, the, the, the key emphasis of Methodism, what sets it apart, is holiness. We're about holiness. And these three passages, they challenge us because the standards that they set are a lot higher than we want them to be. And so we'll always try to add a qualifier onto it, right? Love your enemies, but only when it's safe to do so, right? Only when it doesn't cost you anything. Only when loving your enemies just means saying a prayer for them and, and not, like, just, you know, bless their hearts. <laughs> Got that one from my grandma. Right? Only when there's no risk to your body or your property or your time. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, unless there's other things you want to devote a portion of your heart and mind and strength to. Love your neighbor as yourself, but only when they seem worthy of love, right? Only when your neighbor's a decent person or when they don't annoy you. Only when your neighbor isn't on the other side of the political aisle from you. Only when they look like you or talk like you. Only when they were born on the same side of the border as you. And live with the fruit of the Spirit, but just like pick your favorites, right? Don't worry about the rest if they don't come naturally to you. And so we're going to look at each of these requirements because they each matter. Christians are called to a high standard of holiness. Jesus says very explicitly, be perfect because God is perfect. And far too many of us treat this as just like a figure of speech or an aspirational goal as if he was just saying, well, try your best, little buddy. It's okay. 
But one of the core beliefs of the Methodist Church when it began, one of the things that propelled the explosion of Methodism as a movement was the belief that Jesus was serious. That we are called to perfection. And the term that Wesley used was entire sanctification, which means being made perfectly holy. And he didn't mean you'd never make a mistake or that you would actually be flawless because he understood we're human still, but that you'd be perfectly holy. You would still be subject to all kinds of human frailty, but you would be freed entirely from intentional sin. You'd still experience temptation, but you wouldn't give in to it. You might still sin by accident or unwittingly, but the desire to do things which are sinful would be gone. Your ability to resist temptation would be perfect. Another way of saying this is he's not talking about static perfection. It's not that you can be perfect in the sense that there is no room for improvement, no more need for growth, but that you are perfect in your love of God and your love of neighbor, perfect in your rejection of sin and your embrace of holiness. You'll still make mistakes because you're subject to human frailties, but they'll be honest mistakes. You'll still sin unintentionally. This actually, by the way, is where the book of Leviticus can be really helpful, believe it or not. Because when you read that book, in that book, God tells his people to be holy as he is holy. It's the same concept as Jesus telling his followers to be perfect as God is perfect. But then God goes on to list all the laws they have to follow and all the purification things they have to do. And if you pay close attention, you realize not one of them in the entire book of Leviticus deals with intentional sin. From the very beginning, holiness took into account our frailty, our weakness, and our human limitations. And God has always understood that we will sin without even realizing, without intending to do it. Because we're human, and we'll make mistakes. We don't always know what we're doing. We don't always know what's going on around us. We don't always have all the information or all the facts. We'll make mistakes. And so from the very beginning, that's what holiness has been about. The intentional sinning, the knowing, knowingly doing things that we should not do. And so entire sanctification is not perfection in the sense that we usually mean it, but it's to be perfectly without intentional sin and perfectly without the desire to sin. It's the ability to perfectly resist temptation. In fact, it is the grace of God to resist that temptation without fail. It's the constant state of being the best Christian you've ever been, knowing that there is always room to grow still. Because you'll still make mistakes. <clears throat> and it's, it's almost as if it's graded to our maturity in the faith, right? A new believer can be made perfect in love while still not being as far along in their journey as someone who's been following Christ for 20 years, simply because they don't know yet as well what is righteous and unrighteous, what is sin and not. They have learning to do, right? Now, I know this all sounds complicated, so just remember this. It boils down to a condition of your heart. Entire sanctification means you have no desire to sin at all. It means you are given the grace to perfectly resist the temptation to sin, the grace to choose love in each and every moment. And Wesley was convinced, by the way, that not only was this possible for us, but that, in fact, the Holy Spirit wants to do this in each and every one of us. 
He believed that for some of us, this was a process that might take years, decades, or even our entire lives. But he also believed that for many of us, it would happen instantly, in the blink of an eye, the moment we asked God for it. Now the thing is, he didn't come up with this idea on his own. It wasn't just some sort of revelation he had in the middle of the 1700s. He got this idea from the teachings of the earliest leaders of the Christian churches, from the first three centuries of Christianity. He finds it all throughout their writings. They all believed this was possible. It's a core teaching of the early church. You'll even find it, by the way, in Reformation theologians like Luther and Calvin. They taught it. They believed it. But that idea has been largely lost, especially here in the West. And early Methodist history is full of stories of people who experienced this, who claimed that they asked God to be made perfect in love, to be entirely sanctified, and it happened like that. Now, the early church had different language for it, and that language is still used in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where they still teach this and believe this today. But we still see the same stories throughout the first three centuries of the church, people who are so utterly transformed by the Holy Spirit that they are completely different than they were a moment before. In fact, Wesley was convinced that the revival of this teaching was the only reason God had raised up the Methodist movement. That's how important he believed it to be. So what happened? Why haven't we been teaching it? Why is this the first time some of you are hearing about it? Well, the answer is simple. People don't like it. We kind of prefer the idea that we can still commit sin and it's fine because God will just forgive us, right? It's a little comforting. We prefer to accept our flaws and not work to overcome them. We prefer to kind of pick and choose the items from that list of the fruit of the Spirit, just like we kind of actually prefer to pick and choose the items from the list that precedes it, right? The works of the flesh. Here's the thing, though. The word used for fruit there in the Greek is singular, not plural, which is why in my English translation of the Bible, it still says fruit, not fruits. It's one thing. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all one fruit. It's all or nothing. Now the works of the flesh, that one is plural, by the way, <clears throat> which is good if you read the whole list. But you've got to look at that list and see what you're still guilty of. Most of us probably are not guilty of sexual immorality right now, but odds are that it's been a problem for you in the past because it's a problem for pretty much every human being who lives and breathes at some point. You are probably not guilty of sorcery, I hope. But folks, there are still places in the world today where new converts to Christianity have to give up their practice of sorcery. So we can maybe set those aside, but what about jealousy? Fits of anger. Rivalries. How simple is that one? These are the sorts of things we tend to ignore. We tell ourselves we're not really sinning, but we're jealous of people who have more than we do. Or we develop rivalries with friends and coworkers. <clears throat> we burst into anger around our families. So see, we're all still sinning in, in ways that 
we tend not to recognize as being sinful. <clears throat> and sometimes that fruit of the Spirit, it seems like too much, right? It seems like it's too much for us to embody all of those things at the same time, all the time. And the language that Paul uses in Galatians is pretty clear that that's not like a, yeah, ideally you'd be like this, but most days you're, no, no. He's pretty clear that this is how you're supposed to behave all day, every day. All of these things. Well, Wesley believed that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the seed of that fruit is planted in you. That you contain within you from that moment on all that is necessary for the development of the fruit of the Spirit, except for the water, the light, and the soil. Pause here for a moment and point out, if you ever read that passage in your Bible, usually the Spirit in that passage is capitalized because it's not our spirit versus our flesh. It's our spirit versus the Holy Spirit. It's our flesh versus the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit within us. And if our hearts are the soil that that seed has to take root in, that means we've got to make sure it's good soil. We've got to make sure it's open and receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit. You've got to root out the weeds and the pests that would seek to destroy it. And you have to give that seed the living water and the light of Christ. But we all, all of us who put our faith in Jesus, we all have everything we need to develop the fruit of the Spirit. It's in you already. See, it's not about us. It's not about our skills or our dedication or our work. You cannot and will not make yourself holy. You cannot become entirely sanctified just through your own merit. You can't resist the temptation to sin through your own willpower alone. You can't overcome the desire to sin through your own willpower alone. And God does not expect you to. Instead, he offers this to us as a free gift of his grace. And because it's a free gift of God's grace, it's going to take effect in us in different ways. For some of us, it's a slow transformation over a lifetime. For others, it may all happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. God can do it. God has done it before. And if you want this for yourself, all you have to do is ask him for it. But because we're good Methodists, we do have a method. It's in the name. To maintain and advance our sanctification, to work towards entire sanctification under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. See, the early Methodists would form themselves into what they called bands. Not because they played music, but just because they decided to use that word. And a band was three to five people, all of the same gender, who met weekly to pray for each other, to study the scriptures together, and most importantly, to confess their sins to one another. To hold each other accountable. To speak the truth to each other in love. And there is no tool more powerful than our, for our own discipleship than the band meeting. Now, I'll confess, I took entirely too long to join one, but I've been meeting weekly with my band now every Thursday morning since <clears throat> early October. So it consists of two pastors from Georgia who I met at a conference and one of my closest friends from college. We meet over Zoom, but each week we meet, <clears throat> excuse me, and we use this handy guide, which I've got stacks of out there. And we ask each other these questions. How is it with your soul? What are your struggles and successes? 
How might the Word and the Spirit be speaking into your life? And then eventually, once you've gotten to know each other a little bit and you feel like you can trust each other, do you have any sin to confess? And then my personal favorite, is there anything you want to keep secret from the group? (laughs) Yeah. That's why it takes some time to get to that point. And see, what you do then is you support each other. If someone confesses a sin, you remind them your sin is forgiven and you are loved. And that's it. And you pray for each other. If you want to get serious about your discipleship, if you want to truly get serious about holiness and sanctification, about being holy like Jesus is holy, perfect as he is perfect, there's nothing I would recommend to you as highly as a band meeting. I placed I don't know, like 80 copies or so of this guide and of the little booklet. You pick one or the other. Uh, the book has a bit more information, but the little card has really all you need for a band meeting. They're out here in the entryway. You can grab one on your way out and then grab three to five people, whether they're your closest friends or just the first three to five people you see, and pick a time and start doing it. Not because this is a way to earn your salvation or to work on your holiness through your own power, but because it's a way to open yourself up to the work of the Spirit. And to have people who you will come to trust deeply, who can hold you accountable, who can remind you that you're not doing this alone, and who can remind you that every time you step off the path, you are forgiven and you are loved. Now, I promise you, if you do this, you will find yourself unburdened. You'll find yourself less stressed And you'll find yourself closer to Jesus. You'll find yourself looking forward each week to meeting with your band. And you'll actually find yourself in the week leading up to it paying a lot more attention to your life. Because you know you're going to have to go and tell them, well, okay, how has God been speaking into my life this week? Where have I stepped wrong? You'll find yourself thinking, by the way, if I do this, I have to tell those guys I did it. It's true. You'll stop yourself from doing a lot of things you shouldn't do just because you know you'll have to tell someone about it. That's how accountability works. And yeah, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit is moving within you and shaping you and growing the fruit of the Spirit in you in ways that have never happened for you before. And you just might find yourself made perfect in the love of Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.